0: Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. see if you can hear me from this distance. I'm going to try not to mess with the mic too much. Hopefully I project, but uh, you know what day it is. It's Wednesday, so you know what that means. Who's this podcast for? My name is Nate, and we're back, and particularly I am back. I am back in my bag, as the kids say. Um, I've been renewed. I have a sense of fulfillment in movies again. Saw a really great one um, yesterday. Went to the theater, uh, middle of the day, nobody was there. Saw something that I really enjoyed and it really kind of galvanized me and showed me that um, it kind of brought my way back. You know, I've been talking to you guys about, I didn't really film movies right now for a while. You guys know that's kind of mainly what we talk about on this pod because that's kind of my main uh, passion outside of, uh, you know, I have a few other things, but that's kind of my main interest, my main hobby is movies and uh really writing my own things scripts pilots things of that nature and um you know for a while i have been in a bit of a malaise a bit of a haze i haven't really felt like watching anything old or new i just kind of been out of it so i just put my focus in other things even though we've been covering stuff on the channel and i've been slowly making my way back for a few months there i just didn't feel um connected to it and uh I wasn't going to the theater, I wasn't really, wasn't really watching anything, but uh, as I slowly found my way back, I went to see a movie last weekend called Napoleon, which I'm sure you've heard about if you're keeping up with the film stuff, and uh, watched that, and it was just being in the theater again after like a month or two, which seemed to be longer than maybe I thought, but it felt that way, uh, but it was just good to be back in the theater, just a place that I really love. And I hope it's around as long as I live and maybe even my kids when I have those. And uh, it was just good to be there. And then yesterday, I went to see something else, a movie that I have been putting off uh, called Godzilla Minus One. And that movie kind of brought it all back. Um, I do want to talk about that movie just a little bit. It's been out for a while now, so I don't think I'll be spoiling anything to go through a few of my favorite scenes and moments. I want to start with Napoleon because that was the movie that kind of, that was kind of the beginning of me getting my way back in. I have been putting it off. I just kept putting off going to the theater a lot. I've been putting it off, putting it off. I missed a lot of movies too that I wanted to see just because I didn't feel it. And um, before I get to the movies, I do want to say that that's kind of a key of life of letting yourself feel whatever you're feeling. Not to relish in it or stay in it too long, but to actually fight through it and then eventually come out on the other side. I do think you have to feel every emotion. All emotions are fleeting. I believe that. I think happiness is not something that's a universal constant. I think we're human, so we're, we have complexities. And that means you go through things in life, and sometimes you just go through a malaise. But eventually, you come out on the other side. I don't, I don't believe in staying down too long. But also know that you won't stay high too long either. High as in, you know, feeling up and happy, you're going to come down, but then you're going to go back up. So it's all, you know, it all goes in its phases and its stages. So you have to know that. And I I believe if you believe that, it will make life so much more easier to handle. Because I knew at some point I would come out of my feeling. I just didn't know when, but I stayed with it. I rode with it. I found other things to occupy my time. And now I'm firmly back in on movies, (laughs) even modern movies, which I haven't really been back in on which I haven't been in on in a while, honestly, before this. But um, I just like that lesson. Um, And it showed me that 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 is true, you know, that uh, this thing called life, it has its stages and its phases. Nothing lasts forever, good or bad. So you have to kind of stay even keeled to all of it. You have to stay in the moment as much as possible. And you have to stay very level-headed and know that while the good times will not last forever, the bad times won't either. So that means the good times will return. And that's what you should be looking forward to and keep your mind on. Uh, and knowing that all of it is uh, temporary, all of it. So, I, I, you know, I just think that's important. But Napoleon, this was directed by Ridley Scott, uh, 158 minutes, uh, starring Joaquin Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby and uh, others. Um, It's about Napoleon. Obviously, you know Napoleon Bonaparte, but I'll read a little bit of it. He came from nothing. He conquered everything. A personal look at the French military leader's origins and swift, ruthless, climb to emperor. Viewed through the prism of Napoleon's addictive, volatile relationship with his wife and one true love, Josephine. Uh, what can I say? Uh, it's too long, but that's just a hallmark of one Ridley Scott just to make a movie that uh, could be you know, two hours into well over that. Uh, it was too long. It didn't have to be. There's like a middle period where I was trying not to fall asleep. But I thought that the war scenes were absolutely great. But by all accounts, they made Napoleon feel like lesser of himself than he was in real life. Um, He was obsessed with his wife, Josephine, but how they made it in this movie, it seemed we- a weird obsession in real life. He just made sure that she was... You know, okay by every turn. It's not the only thing that changed. Um, that kind of made him a bit of a weirdo, a bit of a, you know, um, I just think that kind of, one could call it a assassination of character. I don't know that much about Napoleon, but based on all of the uh, historical people who look into this thing for a living, uh, he wasn't like what the movie portrayed. Now, that might not affect your view of the movie. You can still love it. I personally, it didn't affect me that much. Even though some of it felt weird, but I didn't know for certain because I don't know much about Napoleon. But um, I just think as a film, it has great action scenes, but the story itself was a bit missing, and we never really got the sense that he's a great general or a great man. We we know that from history that he changed France for for uh, generations to come, and he was a great war strategist and a great war general, and they show some of his generalship and how that, uh, how his creativity led him to win many battles until, you know, the end, I think. But, uh, but we didn't get a sense of how he shaped France. And I think that just, for a movie this long, it felt incomplete. Um, and apparently there's a four-hour director's cut somewhere, and I don't know who's going to sit down and watch that, because I don't have that desire to watch that. But I think all in all, it's fine. I would call it fine. Uh, I think it's pretty shallow. Uh, I think Joaquin Phoenix tries, but he makes Napoleon weird, and that was already strange enough to pick him to be Napoleon, even though he can be brooding and kind of um and uh, uh, um demanding when he wants to be. But it did come across to me that way. It came across as you know a guy pretending, but also making this. War General, weird, and I don't think he was a weird person based on what I've heard. Really, Scott obviously doesn't care about historical accuracies in movies because when they asked him, he told everybody to F off who was bringing him up about how some of his movie isn't accurate. So, and I, you know, on some level, I get that if you want complete accuracy, you should go watch a documentary or read a book. But a movie does, it still does have the task of being honest, and I don't think that was an honest portrayal of Napoleon. But again, people who know Napoleon might say different, but you know, uh, I don't have much to say on Napoleon. It kind of came and went. But the next movie that I watched, uh, Godzilla Minus One, let me just read you this. This is directed by Takashi Yamazaki. uh, Post war Japan from zero to minus. In post war Japan, a new terror arises. Will the devastated people be able to survive, let alone fight back? This is a Godzilla movie, not of the Godzilla vs. Kong that you might be thinking this is a Godzilla movie from the Shin Godzilla the uh of the Godzillas of the 40s and the 50s straight from Japan about World War 1 or 2 rather after the bomb makes kind of a uh a war allegory this is one of those and man this movie is absolutely fantastic i would recommend anybody to go see it if you think it's just about Godzilla you couldn't be further from the truth it's only 2 hours and 5 minutes and it blows by it has great characters. It has great writing with real depth and imagination and real themes about living and dying and war and what does it mean to be living and What does it mean to die, and what will you die for and what is family in a post war world when you you know when your parents are gone and your family's gone like and you find these people who experience the same hardship as you and you put a mix of your family together, What is now your family? What are you willing to die for? Are you living even if you're alive? But what's the difference between being alive and living? It has all these questions about death and all these questions about war and what it is to be a patriot to your country um It's absolutely riveting. I had heard good things about it, and I finally went to see it yesterday, like I said Madene and um I was blown away how good the Godzilla looks, and I know it's v f x uh, which I don't have a problem with. I know it's green screens. I saw a behind-the-scenes uh, little clip of it, and it's, it was a blue screen and a little set, and they're like, okay, fine. I know there's no really way to, no real way to do this and make it look this good without using a computer, even though you could do some things. but And I'm sure they used a model for some of it at times. I don't know. They probably mixed and matched it, but, but that's fine, because the Godzilla in this movie is absolutely terrifying. And I watched Godzilla vs. Kong, It didn't feel like that. That felt like a computer-loading screen. This felt like a real dinosaur in the water, like a big crocodile. Absolutely terrifying. I thought the performances were really good. The characters are so well-defined and um, have such a life to them and origins. You just don't get from movies over here that often. Uh, I thought the direction was good, where they have these shots, where it's two and three people on the screen, and the aspect ratio, it looked like it's about 185 to 1 at the little bars at the top and the bottom. We're going to get to a video here soon about aspect ratios from movie-wise I got. I'm going to just devo- uh, go straight to him today. He's got two big videos. I don't mind how long it takes when you're going to do it because I am I feel so, you know, back, right? <laughs> I just feel so good right now. But Godzilla minus one, Um, without giving things away, if my favorite things about the movie or my favorite scenes, rather, or, um, I don't want to give it away because I'm not sure if it hasn't been out that long. Hold on, I want to see how long it's been out. Um, it says 2023, but I need a real date because that's not going to help me. It's not giving me a date. Hold on real quick. Uh, December 1st, I guess. So it's only been out like 19 days at the time of recording so um yeah it's only been like over two weeks so i'm not gonna spoil anything not gonna give favor scenes gotta do think of the give stuff away but i would tell you this you guys know me i don't really do reviews that well i don't think i'm that articulate when i'm speaking like this i have to write my words out and i do this podcast straight off the cuff i don't know why i just do i just like it better doesn't feel as scripted uh, but if I was actually going to review this, I would actually write it out and have real uh, words. I'm just a better writer than I am a speaker. But I would tell everybody go watch this. I'm trying to get wife to go watch this um, because she didn't go with me. And she said it's a Godzilla movie. And I had not know what to expect and say, yeah, it is. But this is so much more than a Godzilla movie. And I think everybody will find something in it besides Godzilla Wrecking Havoc in cities. This movie is wonderful. So, that's all I got to say on those movies, man. And this weekend, we're going to see The Iron Claw about the Von Erich family. We've been talking about that all year, kind of. So, I'm excited for that. Uh, You know, in my little haste of thinking that I was, you know, in my little, like, downtime with movies, I didn't think I saw that many because it felt like I went from the middle of the year to December without watching many. But then I went back and looked through Letterboxd because I track every movie I watched this year, and I watched way more than that, so I was happy about that, and we go to January 2023, I watched two movies, one new, one old, Uh, March, I don't watch anything, well, January, I watched six movies, one, two, three, four, five new, one um old, February, I watched two movies, one new, one old, March, I watched one, two, three, six movies, uh two new four old april that was the chicago trip um i watched air in chicago that was new But was afraid are either watched three movies may only watched one movie <laughs> uh june i watched three movies but two of them were new to me well all of them were, were new to me but one was actually new july watched three movies two new august two movies one new october didn't watch anything in September, apparently. October, I watched uh one movie. No, three movies, actually, but one was 2023. And then December, I watched two new movies, which we just talked about. Napoleon and Godzilla and Saturday, I'll probably be adding another one. So I watched more than I thought. It feels like a small year, especially compared to last year, where I have months. Last year, like November, I watched 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 movies that's a lot for me. And this, this year I only have like a month of six and it came early in the year. So it definitely petered off, but I do think I watched more than I gave myself credit for. And I'll have a top 10 list for you. And you know how I do it. I did it last year. It'll be a top 10 of everything I've watched that was new to me. So it doesn't have to be from this year. It's just going to be new movies. So this year I watched Sunset Boulevard and Amadeus and The Exorcist for the first time. Stuff like that. You have to know that those are going to be part of it. Because if it was all movies from this year, I don't think I'd have a list because I didn't like. Uh, probably didn't want to put everything I watched from 2023 because I didn't like probably most of it. But if we talk about all the movies I've watched this year that were new to me, I could come up with a pretty dang good list and probably have more movies from 2023 than I did from 2022, which I don't think I had any movies from last year. So that's something to look forward to probably next week because after that it'll be New Year's and I like to get it out right at the end of the year. I don't do it like a month out like some people. I like to do it right when the year's in. So I so I can literally say I waited till the last second, I watched as much as I can. And sadly, some stuff was missed and I'm not gonna be able to watch it in time like Asteroid City, the holdovers, stuff like that, but that's how the cookie crumbles. But um anyway. Let's jump on over to our friend, MovieWise, right after this. Alright, I'm back. So we got MovieWise in the building. Not literally, but figuratively. Um, And I hope my thing works this time. I think it is. We have two videos, two big ones I've been waiting to really dive into. One is called What's Missing the Future of Cinema is in the Past. Now, I don't think I've touched on this. I hope I haven't. I'm trying to remember if I did or not. Um, A part of me wants to go find out. um, If I did, it would really suck. because I'm rehashing old material, and I try not to do that. Uh, This was three months ago. And I don't think I have, honestly. So, movie was makes an appearance with a big video from him. Which one was this? I don't. I'm not going through. Them. I'm not. I should write these down so I can know which ones I've done. I usually keep a mental note. Um, but today we're just gonna do it. So I have from him. What's missing? The future, cinemas in the past. And the filmmaker who did everything right, which is Billy Wilder, which is his kind of long form 21 minute video on Billy Wilder. But first, let's jump into the future of cinema is in the past. You know, as always, I got to reach out the description. Just so you get a sense of what we're doing with this one. And he says a video essay about how current directors have been using the scope aspect ratio. Which is 24 to 1 and up, incorrectly. To prove that the wide images we have been getting are not truly wide, we'll go through the history of widescreen. First, we'll see how classical filmmakers like William Wyler, Anthony Mann, Vincent Minnelli, and Akira Kurosawa used to frame their images in Academy ratio 137 to 1. And then we'll see how they adapted to 235 and 255 to 1. What did they gain and what did they lose? As time went on, however, Scope faced the challenge of television and pan and scan to save their images. Directors devised two strategies that allowed their films to be shown on the small screen without much loss. Shoot full frame or shoot and protect. The latter was the more popular choice and it slowly led to the downfall of scope. TVs grew bigger and wider, making letterbox an attractive choice to save scope frames. Unfortunately, directors got a liking to those black bars without much minding. Why they were there, this led to our age in which audiovisual media is shot in 239 to 1 willy nilly simply because it looks cinematic, which you find in video games where they say cinematic mode and they have no idea why. And it seems the best way to get our directors to deliver us images that look tall and composed, at least better than bad scope, is with the return of Academy ratio as examples. As examples from Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. And Zack Snyder's Justice League can prove, by the way, did you ever notice how poorly framed his inception? (laughs) So, that's what this is going to be about, Aspect Ratio. Did a whole video on Aspect Ratio, breaking it down. But he's going to argue that the future of cinema is in the past, where we need to go back and take things from the past and reincorporate them into movies of the future. I think I would agree. So without further ado, because we got another long video after this one, let's get into it. The future of cinema is in the past. From movie-wise, obviously. The history of cinema is weird. It is not a straight line of progress with each new era advancing the art. If anything, it moves crab like each period brings something new forget some trait from the previous era and resurrect some
1: other from an even earlier one today we'll find out about some things that our current age unlearned and how it just might be on its way to relearn it. it has to do with composition and aspect ratios aspect ratio reminder it's the proportion of the screen's width divided by its height in classical cinema the only choice for aspect Ratio was Sagadity ratio. the square like 1. In four decades, Oh, let
0: me go back. He put that up quick.
1: cinema, only for aspect ratio was ratio, the ratio. square like
0: 1.3721. Silent cinema was in a close enough 133-1, and there were a few sound films in 120 to 1 besides scant early attempts at widescreen, like Abel Gantz's 1927 Napoleon which is ironic since they just made it again almost a hundred years later. But it's interesting to see how things go in cycles, like we mentioned.
1: In four decades, filmmakers mastered the use of this exact format. In every country genre and style, because it is not very wide, verticality became a major component of the movie image. Dialogue constantly showed the actor's bodies. Besides their faces, you could see in detail how they were dressed and their body language. For example, you could often watch what their hands were doing while they spoke. Directors could position characters in different vertical levels to make scenes more visually striking. Anthony Mann particularly loved to make verticality a major component of his shootout scenes. Using left versus right He often used top versus bottom There's a metaphor in there somewhere And if nothing else Height could help you make out the set Those classic art deco rooms Were always tall, weren't they? The academy ratio was the movie screen It was tall and it was wide Right? He often used top versus bottom There's a metaphor in there somewhere Nothing else height could help you make out the set. Those classic Art Deco rooms were always tall, weren't they? The Academy ratio was the movie screen. It was tall and it was wide when it needed to be. It lacked for nothing.
2: I am big. It's
1: the picture that got small. But then the fifties came and they brought along widescreen, mostly to compete with television. TV
0: mind, it will come back to violence. A whole slew of aspect ratios were born, but let's stick to scope. Let's go through these aspect ratios
1: real quick. Mostly to compete with television. Give TV mind, it will come back
0: to violence. A whole slew of aspect... 185. was that? 166. Hold got wow. past me quickly. Mostly
1: to compete with television. Give TV mind, it will come back to
0: violence. A whole host- slew... 166 with the slight bars on the side. 185 slight bar at the top and bottom. It looked like that's what Godzilla minus one was. It could have been two to one as well. Two twenty, 255, 276. But we're sticking with scope, which is 241 and 255 to one, uh, roughly, approximately. To with
1: television, TV, a slew of aspect ratios were born, but let's stick to scope. Most directors hated having to shoot films in scope, even the ones who excelled at it. After decades of watching, planning, and composing in this specific area, veterans saw no sense in suddenly having to widen the image. Howard Hawks and Fritz Lang believed that if scope were a good ratio, then painters would have used it throughout history, right? C'est très chouette. J'aime beaucoup Ruben Maboulian called CinemaScope the worst shape ever devised. And Vincent Spinelli thought he had less image up and down instead of more on the sides. But as much as they disliked it, they welcomed the challenge. They quickly realized they could not simply transfer their skills from academy to scope. A new screen shape required a new manner of composing the movie image. And that and that and that and that and that and that and that, and, that. and the first rule was spread. Fill up space. Oh, we you got to do is one of us has got to knock off a man. You mean marry? Well, if you don't marry, if you haven't caught him, he's caught you. This is Minnelli in Academy Ratio.
2: He's ruthless,
1: magnificent,
2: romantic.
1: Mind how the set is tall. Is it narrow? I wouldn't say so. The whole width is utilized and there doesn't seem to be anything missing. Now this is Minnelli in scope. This time the set is so wide, it might appear short in comparison to the previous ratio. When you watch the film though, you don't feel like there is any loss, because what we are given is perfectly filled up. In theory, scope should simply give you more image on the sides, and it does so in landscapes and large ensembles. In practice, it becomes
2: virtually impossible to create vertical contrast, because the distance between top and bottom is minimal compared to left and right. If the actors are on two different levels in Academy Ratio, they are far apart. But in scope, they look much closer. They need to be separated horizontally to give distance. You need a square rectangle to create a vertical contrast. A shot like this one from Minnelli's The Bad and the Beautiful becomes unthinkable in scope. What are you doing up there? Yeah. In Academy Ratio, William Wyler, always the lover of stairs and depth, used them constantly to create memorable vertical images. He could also make them horizontal, why not?
1: In a square like frame, you can create distance vertically and horizontally. But once Wyler moved to scope, he realized the same impact could only be achieved horizontally. I think we're both in the time, to think this over.
2: I think that could be a very fine idea. Nice. Remember how Anthony
1: Mann shot vertical shootouts? When he filmed in Scope, he had to stick to horizontal. <laughs> Basically, Scope brings new possibilities while limiting others. Veterans adapted and internationally non-Hollywood directors made it an attractive choice for work composed white frames. One of the greatest framers of frames in movie history was, of course, Akira Kurosawa. Check his academy ratio frames in Seven Samurai and notice how he fills up the screen. The top and the bottom contrast each other and we miss nothing on the sides. Now here's Sanjuro, in scope. It's not as noticeably tall, but the height is so perfectly filled we are not missing anything up or down,
0: and all that back to width with shows the new possibilities of the wide screen. The art was moving forward. Then got an answer.
1: Then came the source of all movie troubles.
2: In the 70s. 70s. In the 70s that ensued is hard to believe. By the 70s, scope was the norm, and directors were coerced to use it whenever possible so your local theater wouldn't have unused margins on the wall. Meanwhile, television was more present than ever, and the commonly broadcast program was Ocean pictures. The problem
1: is, old TVs were all in 4x3, practically the same as our dear retired academy ratio. Take this thing oh. So, whenever a scope field was exhibited, networks committed the crime of pen and scan. The sides are cropped to fit the small screen. This becomes this. When you pen and scan scope, you lose some 40% of the original image. Couldn't fight it, so once again they had to adapt. You had only two possible ways of saving your image. One was to shoot full frame. You compose your image in widescreen, but you shoot needless headroom and floor to get a full frame in 4 x which one most directors chose this is one of the reasons why close-ups and over-the-shoulder shots became so frequent films were now being deliberately framed for tv not cinema when tvs improved they got bigger and they widened to the 16 by 9 aspect ratio which could fit films in 185 to 1 without a hitch. films in scope were more at home because pen and scan didn't hurt as much and letterboxing became a common option Letterboxing is what you're seeing now, black bars. Since movies are far more often watched at home than in movie houses today, many people grew up with the distorted idea that the black bars of letterboxing are inherently... cinematic. Shooting in scope became a go-to way to make whatever it is you're shooting supposedly look like a movie. It's got black bars up and down. It's cinematic. Today they even throw black bars into content meant straight for television, like the boys. Remember what I told you? scope is not inherently cinematic. And the most hilarious part, video games. Yes, some games use letterbox in part or throughout because makers think it's chic. But anyone with eyes can see they're just cropping the top and the bottom. Basically, here's the brief history of the scope aspect ratio. When it arrived, veterans of Academy adapted to it. They got appropriate locations, they filled up the screen, they invented a new aesthetic, which could sometimes include stronger close-ups and abstract images. Then DV came and many directors bowed down. They unlearned what came before and shot in 4x3 with empty extra space. TVs widened and became welcoming to frames in true scope. But it was too late. Films of the 70s and 80s had already influenced generations of new filmmakers who started shooting scope for no other reason than because it's cool and cinematic. Gone were those well-framed sets, that body language, those ends in the bottom. And that is something that good scope and height can achieve. Teamwork, that's what counts in an organization like this. One for one and one for all. You know what I mean? Today, scope is not wide. But short, today even films that take place in limited locations like a phone booth, a car, or a mother
0: fucking top finger in smoke. Let me make things clear. If your 2.4 frame is just 185 or 4 by 3 with the poles missing, then you are using smoke wrong. Always right pads are designed for perfect. Oh, sorry, uh, it's. But to this point, I love his breakdown of the history where scope came into play after using Academy ratio for so long, which was the square box. And then directors adapted. But then once TV came, they said, man, we're not even going to be able to see all of this. And they start making their movies for TV screens. So they went back to Academy, but not the Academy that was before this new Academy that had empty spaces, but you used it because you didn't want your subject of the of the shot to be cut off. So it's a fake academy. It's like or a, a watered-down academy. Because the academy of the old days has such filling of the frame and verticality. And now they don't. Then when TVs became widescreen, they went back to scope. But by this point, it was an empty scope. It was a TV scope. So now they use scoping movies that don't need it. And you see that in a lot of blockbusters today. Just a little, you know, just to kind of clean up, I guess, what he was saying. It feels a bit confusing, but I think you all understand. Uh, That's why he said the future of cinemas in the past, because they're using it wrong. Well, they should go back and take things from the past and use them today. But you got to know why you're using them, because context matters. Yeah,
1: Harry. Let's take a brief pause so you can like and subscribe, which will help you get more videos like this one. In 2008, Christopher Nolan shot some set pieces from The Dark Knight in IMAX. The thing about IMAX is that it's the biggest screen in the world, but it is not wide like the Groundbreakers from the 50s. IMAX is tall, 1.43 to 1 very very close to our old friend academy ratio 137 those scenes were only meant for real imax screens though the rest of the world got a cropped version in scope that exemplifies perfectly the typical short 2.4 we are unfortunately used to let's compare both versions to learn how Nolan and most directors have been using scope from here's the opening bank heist in imax here's in scope with in scope, you invariably get less information. These two zip lining. Here's the opening bank heist in IMAX. Here's in scope. With in scope, you invariably get less information. These two zip lining criminals here. In the shot in scope, you get a bunch of fragments. Half this guy, this one's head, and a little rooftop. In IMAX, you get more of them and the whole rooftop they intend to get to. Now look at the crime that is shit scope. These shots don't
2: look tall at all. In one for 3 the vertical lines are
1: longer, so this stunt really feels like a drop. When they land in scope, you cannot even see where they came from. You'll probably think it's from this randomly open window here but you need the full frame to see the real window two stories higher and so it goes the extra height makes the bank look far more spacious hands doing things turn into people doing things what's only a vault becomes a big vault and you understand better the size and location of objects and characters Look at this G and B canopy here. It makes William Fichtner's position and distance to the robbers much easier to understand. Jim Emerson holds Christopher Nolan now one thing at a time director, meaning his shots only show one single piece of information. extra height because it is not staged for smoke it is staged for academy ratio it is tall not wide. don't worry i know the counter argument
2: the imax scenes are meant to be seen on imax he okay. doesn't give a fig about the majority of his audience you're being unfair i wish you were right hypothetical debater but every single scene by nolan is staged the same way take another nolan movie one that had no scenes shot on 143 inception In the street folding scene, we are supposed to feel wondrous. Eris folds on itself. But pay close attention to the shot. We We can't
1: see anything more than three buildings at a time. The frame is incomplete. What about the famous rotating corridor? Now, this one's a mess. On a bit of an engine here, the scene would look incomparably better if the camera rotated with the fight.
2: And it would make much more sense. Back to height to how the camera struggles to catch each file. First thing, turn on the off-frame counter and start off-frame. or Superheroes tend to be
1: as figures, they tend to be less horizontal, maybe man when he's flying, but when he's standing, he's more of a vertical.
2: Everything is composed and shot that way, and a lot of the restoration is sort of trying to put that back, put these big squares back. It's a completely different
1: aesthetic, it's just got a different quality and one that is unusual. No one's doing that. My sweet Billy Wilder in heaven! This is so stupid. It's
2: like witnessing a lumberjack claiming he invented the wheel. Superheroes tend to be more vertical. You know who else tends to be
1: more vertical, Zack? By bets. Every single humanoid character in existence and imagination has been more vertical, Zack. <laughs> You're seems to be slowly but steadily on the rise. Maybe, just maybe, more big-name directors will realize they never know how to use scope all this while and take a chance with our dear old Academy Ratio. Perhaps the re-squaring will happen. Wes Anderson, a master of all ratios, can guide them. I hope Nolan makes a whole film in one for three someday. That's his language. More room for his love oh, social media already conditioned our youth to vertical frames. So it wouldn't be too much of a stretch if Academy Ratio was welcomed as something new and tall. But that's just an overly optimistic thing. What do you think? Will Academy Ratio return to mainstream cinema? Will we have a vertical film trend? Tell me in the comments. Thank you for watching and I'll see you next time.
0: Thank you, movie-wise. We're coming back to finish this up with one more movie-wise about our about our guy, Billy Wilder. Alright. The filmmaker who did everything right. Let me start this over because I was watching some of this, but I never finished it because I wanted to do it on the pod. This is about Billy Wilder. Let's get into it. A video essay about the greatest writer cinema ever had the privilege of having Billy Wilder. With the strong characters, witty dialogue, clever plot structure, and emphasis on action, he shows you how to make a screenplay that's precious and cinematic. With his long takes, wide angles, pristine timing, and sophistication, he was also one of the greatest directors of all time. Here we'll compare Billy's perfect romantic comedy Sabrina in 1954, which he wrote alongside Samuel Taylor and Ernest Lehman, he always wrote with collaborators, to Sidney Pollack's 1995 remake. You'll see how everything special about the original film was cold-heartedly eliminated, creating a snobby, average love story instead of a well-made masterpiece. Why anyone would try to rewrite Billy Wilder's dialogue is completely beyond me. Sabrina Audrey Hepburn slash Julia Orman is the daughter of the millionaire Larrabee family's chauffeur. She is in love with the youngest son Playboy David, played by William Holden and Greg Kinnear, but he barely knows she exists. After she returns from Paris, transformed into a new woman, Audrey burn without a hair tail, David is finally smitten. The eldest son, Linus Humphrey Bogart, Harrison Ford, won't let David throw away his upcoming union to a more lucrative prospect, though, so he gets in the way. And again, this is the filmmaker who did everything right by a movie-wise. Again, let's jump into it because it's a pretty long one. want to start started off is both one of the greatest screenwriters and one of the greatest directors
1: to ever script a script and film a film. An ideal of a complete artist who does everything right. Let's check why. If Billy is a brilliant director, it's because he's a brilliant writer. Who does everything right. Let's check
0: why. If Billy is a brilliant director, it's because he's a brilliant writer. His screenplays are already cinematic, visually creative, and physical. As a director, all he needs to do is not stand in his own way. And with his long takes, wide angles, oh, sorry, before we continue, he made the apartment, Sunset Boulevard, Ace in a Hole, etc., etc. Some like it hot. So, but all you really need to know is the apartment. Let you know everything you need to know about Billy Wilder. Anyway, let's continue. ...love for a clear activity he ever does. In this video, we'll go through his God-level screenwriting chops, his strong characters, witty dialogue, and emphasis on action. And to better highlight Billy's brilliance, we'll show those who try to do the same thing and fail. My intention, I, catch I think it's reprehensible, but uh, very practical. We'll take a look at Billy Wilder's 1954 romantic comedy Sabrina, penned
1: alongside Samuel Taylor and Ernest Lehman, and compare it to Sidney Pollack's 1995 remake, penned by these guys. As far as original remake comparisons go, this is one of the most interesting cases because they managed to take everything that makes the first film special and unload Before we compare scenes to celebrate the Wilder way, let's go through the entire plot of Sabrina and Sabrina. Who is Sabrina? Sabrina is the plain-looking, as far as Audrey Hepburn can be, daughter of their child. Chauffeur to the uber-rich, lair family. Elder son Linus is the workaholic thinking brain of the company. Youngster David is a womanizing playboy Sabrina has had a crush on all her life. She's barely noticed. She's shipped to Paris and returns two years later as a sophisticated piece of attraction. Linus wants a big merger with the Tyson Company, so he puppets David into an engagement with the family heiress, Elizabeth Tyson. But when Sabrina returns, David is finally smitten and puts the merger in peril. Linus manipulates David into sticking Lashards on his own ass so he can't hang out with Sabrina. Linus dates Sabrina for a while with the intention of convincing her to go to Paris with him just to get rid of her and have the wedding. Naturally, they fall for each other and the regretful Linus confesses his scheme. She decides to return to Paris alone, and Linus chooses to cancel the wedding and let David journey with Sabrina. Aware that his brothers in law David, goes through the wedding, so Linus gets the merger and Sabrina. Happy ending! Got
2: you know,
1: like it, uh
0: sorry. As modern movies are wont to do, the remake favors practical over analytical dialogue. Watch my video on it. Exposition over images, short, shallow scenes and montages instead of well developed scenes, and of course, singles over ensemble shots. I won't center on the direction, but notice in the clips how it takes Wilder one shot to tell more than all I can do with four. How sets, actors, and move go back a little bit. Relates David to sticking Lesha.
1: So he puppets David into an engagement with the family heiress, Elizabeth Dyson. But when Sabrina returns, David is finally smitten and puts the merger in peril. Linus manipulates David into sticking English arts on his own ass so he can't hang out with Sabrina. Linus dates Sabrina for a while with the intention of convincing her to go to Paris with him just to get rid of her and have the wedding. Naturally, they fall for each other and a regretful Linus confesses his scheme. She decides to return to Paris alone, and Linus chooses to cancel the wedding and let David journey with Sabrina. Aware that his brothers in law David, goes through the wedding, so Linus gets the merger and Sabrina. Happy ending! As modern movies are wont to do, the remake favors practical over analytical. My video on it, exposition over images, short, shallow scenes and montages instead of well developed scenes, and of course, singles over ensemble shots. I won't center on the direction, but notice in the clips how it takes Wilder one shot to tell more than Polak can do with four. How sets, actors, and movements are more clearly seen. Here's the introduction of the Larrabee family in the original, photographed in front of their own old photo. Or maybe, I don't We how sets, sectors and movements are more exciting. Here's the introduction of the Larrabee family in the original, photographed in front of their own old photo. Or many, I don't know. We immediately get how their status is dynastic and how David has never grown up. Linus is told to hide his photo spoiling Wall Street Journal. In ten silent seconds, we know he can't separate business from his personal life. After his childish pose, David suavely steals a flower for his thugs and suavely gets a woman to dance. Now here's the. We immediately get how their status is dynastic and how David has never grown up. Linus is told to hide his photo spoiling Wall Street Journal. In 10 silent seconds, we know he can't separate business from his personal life. After his childish pose, David suavely steals a flower for his studs and suavely gets a woman to dance. Now here's the remake. We don't see the family together. Here's mom. She says a couple useless lines the writers thought were a discreet way to show
2: her status. Senator, have I got- Get it? She knows senators. Linus is on the phone away from the agitation. Of course, we get some useless business lingo. Well, I just don't feel like buying any more networks this year. Get it? In this business, David is introduced already dancing. Inserts frivolous flirting, of course.
1: tells him not to do his hopping punish take over the net. Whatever you do, you understand your side of the net. Worth play with Sir. screen Also, the remake's Gretchen has zero personality. The original Gretchen giggled and played coy. That's all, and they couldn't keep that much. The original scene worked like a little jewel. Why change it? Serious question. Why change it? <laughs> Here, David ignores Linus's secretary and enters his office. Two men turn casually. The original, David uses language with strong imagery to force the secretary to open the door. Miss are you going to press that button? Or do I have to take you up in my arms and break that door down using you as a battering ram? He enters and five people turn in comic synchronicity. Yeah, turns out a comedy is allowed to be funny. David and Linus butt heads, and it's just sad to see how Harrison Ford is no match for Humphrey Bogart. You're right. He is charismatic in an effortless way. He is serious but has good humor. He is someone you can believe would court his brother's girlfriend for a business deal and slightly sadistic
2: enough to enjoy it. Say I enjoyed There is no way you can believe Ford Slimers would do the same. He's dull, lifeless, and never bored. His body language is rigid and limited to forcibly lifting his forearms. He would never fire a gun mid-conversation. The remake scene ends with stand and dialogue, minus a punchline. Elizabeth Tyson's the best thing that ever happened to you, and you told me so yourself. In the original, Linus forces David to test their new therapy plastic with eight secretaries, creating a funny finish and showing how Linus can make David do his bidding. Yeah. Why would the remake cut this type of physical humor? Because the remake is ashamed of being a comedy. Desperately deletes one-liners and gags and replaces them with nothing. It tries to present serious characters in a serious world, and they sometimes do and say something funny-ish.
1: While the original has funny characters in a funny world and is proud of it. Yesterday, we have learned the correct way how to boil water. Let's check Sabrina in the bar. Deletes one-liners and gags and replaces them with nothing. It tries to present serious characters in a serious world, and they sometimes do and say something funny-ish, while the original has funny characters in a funny world and is proud of it. Yesterday, we have learned the correct way how to boil water. Let's check Sabrina in the party. David must get rid of Tyson to better flirt with Sabrina. I certainly
2: don't want to spend the first 18 hours of my life in a plane, sitting up. Do
1: you? Yes, so he engineers a way for her to leave. Sabrina arrives and we get funny shots of boys reacting. She joins David and is right at home among the swells. The remake removes Tyson from the party, so there's no farce. Sabrina arrives to no reactions and feels nauseously nervous. In the original, David and Sabrina dance as the crowd disperses, showing how indiscreet
2: they're being and helping us to see David's mother approaching. No such visuals in the remake. We simply cut to his mother meeting the couple amid the party goers. Boring. To say the least. Beth, this actress is a specialist in playing kind and loving mothers. Oh, for
1: you! Sabrina keeps feeling out of place as if she's in a dream. So I ask you this. Isn't the whole point of this ugly duckling premise that she learned to be sophisticated, elegant and graceful in Paris? She should never feel uncomfortable in the Larabies party. This is something irritatingly endemic in modern cinema. Characters are losers. No, hear me out. I already mentioned how the original gives David self-confident swagger, Linus, natural ease. Post-Berry Sabrina is equally socially adept. I have learned how to be in the world and of the
2: world. She belongs to the party, just like she can sail you on Linus' boat with a happy and friendly demeanor. Just like she can have fun in Linus' office. And such noise as though she belonged in there. The remake makes her nervous in the party. Nervous in Linus' jet. And nervous in Linus' office. Wow. It's,
1: Big. In what world, Sydney? In what world is a long lens medium close-up with a shallow one focused background? Big. Sydney? Why wouldn't you show an angle like this one? Shoulder room size, Sydney. Why the <gasps> f like Sabrina David is demoted from debonair gods gift to women to just another insecure normal guy. Really? Why? See Holden meeting Sabrina straight back from Ferris. Thanks you, miss. Cheapest breaks in Vancouver. Now witness can hear. I'm I'm great. <laughs> uh, how are you? Well I'm fine. How are you? And I might add, who are you? Well, you know me. <laughs> Don't you? In the car, she throws him a shit test, and our David passes with flying colors. I
2: could have sworn I knew every pretty girl on the North
1: Shore. I could have sworn you'd have more teddy than that. <laughs> this is maddening. I know I've seen that face before. The remake gives the exchange but has him fail like a regular schmuck. I could have sworn I knew every pretty girl on the North Shore.
2: Oh, I could have sworn you took in more territory
1: than that. Ouch. <laughs> You're a loser. Bogie's Linus dances with Tyson so she won't find David with Sabrina. And so Wilder can have some fun with camera choreography.
0: That is an interesting change. Exchange, but has him fail? Tell me. <laughs> Don't you? In the car, she
2: throws him a ship test and our David passes with flying colors. You've sworn I knew every pretty girl on the North Shore. I have sworn you took in more territory than that.
1: <laughs> this is maddening. I know I've seen that face before. The remake gives the exchange but has him fail like a regular spunk.
2: I could have sworn I
1: knew every pretty girl on the North Shore. Oh, I
2: could have sworn you took in more territory than that. Ouch. You're a loser. Bogie's Linus dances with Dyson so she won't find David with Sabrina. And so Wilder can have some fun with camera choreography. It's impossible to imagine Ford, the
1: board, pulling off such a gentleman move. Compare. It's
2: millions. I suppose you dropped one. But what I did. What's at the end of a million? Zero, 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 nothing. Circle with a hole in it. Oh, gee, I don't know. I guess I, I don't know. Um, I don't know anything about... Uh, uh... Uh... Sure. Which one? Um... All of them. just All this is to say that the original Sabrina gives us characters who are extraordinary. They are above human. Imperfect as these people are, they are demigods. Unusually quick, charming, and assured. Thank you. They radiate the Italian term splettatura, The trait of the perfect courtier, The ability to always say and do the right thing in every situation. Unchalantly. Supreme savoir Faire. The remake turned them into mere mortals. They can't quit. They can't light up a room. You can be sure that the excuse, because there's always an excuse, is, a ahem, realism. These losers are more realistic. They're awkward and melodroid, therefore, they're likeable. That's what Hollywood thinks of you, you know. They want us to watch gutless wimps and think, ah, oh, that's me. Modern Hollywood and its defenders are obsessed with using realism as an excuse for a lazy, unintelligent writing and directing. As if we needed realism
1: in a multi-million dollar fairy tale like Cinderella store. Give me the demigods of your anytime. time. They are difficult to write. A writer should run away from easy like COVID with a chainsaw.
0: Here's... Facts, facts, facts to all of that. Characters are so weak now. And it's, you know, it's not realism. It's just, man, it's just, I absolutely get everything he's saying in that aspect of it. Hold uh, on, one second.
2: Artistic. They're awkward and melodroid, therefore, they're likeable. That's what Hollywood thinks of you, you know. They want us to watch gutless wimps and think, Ah, oh, that's me. Modern Hollywood and its defenders are obsessed with using realism as an excuse for lazy, unintelligent writing and directing. As if we needed realism in a multi-million dollar fairy tale-like Cinderella story. Give me the demigods of yore anytime. They are difficult to write. A writer should run away from easy like COVID with a chainsaw.
0: Here's a recurring joke that's removed and replaced with nothing. The Larrabee matriarch won't let her husband smoke, so he keeps hiding his cigar. In this Lubitsch-style shot, Larrabee Sr. sees his wife approaching off-screen and hides his cigar in his whiskey. Later, Linus catches him smoking in his closet, giving a funny opener for their scene together. I don't mind your smoking in my room, but not in my clothes class. Good for the moths. The
1: same character is later shown failing at picking an olive out of a jar. How would you do if you can't even get a little olive out of a jar? Eat it. And in the ending, in a throwback to David's last-ass issue, the same thing happens to Father. Sit down, Father. These are just a couple of humorous examples of something the original does that was heartlessly cut from the remake. The use of props tells his story with the help of objects. This should be visual storytelling, shouldn't it? Have the characters not only say things, not only interact with each other, but do things and interact with the world around them.
2: gadgets.
1: Sabrina first bonds with Linus when they listen to music together. Later, she sings their banana tune and we understand
2: she's beginning to fall for him. We have no
1: The remake has what? Close-ups and John Williams, like. Let go back. Last time we going back. Storytelling, shouldn't it? Have the
2: characters not only say things, not only interact with each other, but do things and interact with the world around them.
1: Sabrina first bonds with Linus when they listen to music together. Later, she sings their banana tune, and we understand she's beginning to fall for him. We have no. The remake has what? Close-ups and John Williams' light.
2: <laughs> Later, Sabrina tells Linus how to carry himself in
1: Paris. Straighten your head and never wear an umbrella.
2: Never a briefcase in Paris and never an umbrella. It's
1: a law. David mocks his Sabrina-fixed hat.
2: Hey, what's with the so he unsabrenas it and picks up his umbrella, a symbolic way of undoing their connection. In the very last scene, she straightens his head again and right before they hug, he gets rid of his umbrella. If you ask me, this is love shown on screen. What does the remake do? They remove the head and umbrella motif and replace it with, you guessed it, Linus meets her in an indifferent location, speaks generic whispery dialogue and close-ups with sentimental piano. I thought it was all a
1: lie. So did I. It was a lie. But something happened. It was a lie. Paris is always a lie. I think you know I love your father better than anyone else. It was a lie. If there was anything you could ever do, save me. I don't know how... You promised. You're the only one who can. How
2: did you... Your
1: father was a dream. I've been following your father all my life. I told him I'd make your father happy.
2: Without you, no I promised
1: I'd make your father better than you. Yeah. Supreme Final kiss. Why have it creative when you can have it cliché? You can bet that if these screenwriters had found a way to replace David's champagne glasses with easy other dialogue, they would have no. Wilder gives David a combo of fan and ice. Then a hammock with a hole for his butt A butt hole, if you will. Apps for gags. <laughs> The remake has David simply lie down with some obvious drugged up humor. Did the dry cleaners have your car? He's the butt of the joke, but there's no joke of his butt.
2: <laughs> now we've been through Wilder's masterful use of objects and actions, let's examine his genius quality dialogue. Oh,
1: All I have had the most terrible impulse to do something. Never resist an impulse, Sabrina. Especially have it's terrible. His Sabrina is a paragon of wit.
2: That boy has no sense of time, no sense of direction. As a matter of fact, he has no sense. Characters are sharp virtuosos of the bombo. Make sure to check my video on what constitutes witty dialogue. And since we're here, like and subscribe.
1: You can also flirt with my Patreon. Moving on, the new Sabrina has its moments of good dialogue. Not gonna lie. Not gonna sue his own mother. Well, he's not. Mother, go outside. Blow out your candles.
2: Can't we send somebody? you ever heard me refer to as the world's only living heart donor? (laughs) But overall, it's a barrage of the obvious. Sabrina? Jokes are consistently
1: dumber. Sabrina? And there's very little subtext. Sabrina? Why does he keep saying that? Jack David confronting Linus. He gives him a boring punch and dramatically tells him everything he thinks. How could you do what you did to me and to her? How could you go that far? Originally, he slowly builds towards it with a mathematical metaphor. I'm not very bright. took me until this morning to add two and two together, like the two champagne glasses and the plastic steel and Sabrina. You know what I got? What? The punch is much cooler, and David drives towards Linus being in love with Sabrina with more metaphor, comparing his emotions to a durable product slogan. Linus, Larry, the man who doesn't burn, doesn't scorch, doesn't melt, suddenly throws a $20 million deal up appropriate for a Laramie, isn't it? Doesn't
2: burn, doesn't
1: scorch, doesn't melt. Are you sure you don't want to go with it?
2: Why should I want to go
1: with it? Because you're in love with it. Well, compare it to this dramatic nothing. You blow a billion dollars for this? I see.
0: I miss the plane. Hopefully it lasts appreciate- that. Wrapping it up.
1: Sabrina leaves for berries in a ship, which horns away throughout the final merger meeting. So we have extra information through sound in the background. Not only that, it's an opportunity for Linus to check every synonym for failed. I don't mean to say that our merger has hit a snag, or failed to gel, or gone up in smoke. Before settling on the one that's more symbolically appropriate, it on the away. This dialogue is rich, rich in subtext, metaphor, syllabses, references, and banter. There's one thing you overlooked. I have proposed that she hasn't accepted. Don't worry, I propose that Mr. Tyson accepted. Did you kiss him? They talk of one thing meaning another. Oh, you're dying. i beg a
0: good I love this. I love it.
1: Don't worry, I propose that Mr. Tyson accepted. Did you kiss him? They talk of one thing meaning another.
2: Oh, you'll be dying. I reckon why? Come better. David wants to run off of it. That's nice for the chauffeur's daughter. I don't care if he runs off the car, his grandmother. I just wanted
1: to run off of the plastic collection. I like Sabrina. I always have. But I'm not about to kiss off a million dollars. I don't care what she did to her hair. Here, Sabrina hints at her father being a chauffeur by being ambiguous. General Motors? Rose Royce? Is your father on the board of directors of all those companies? I say he runs things. Of course I do. You're my neighbor on the Soros (laughs) Lane.
2: And you're David.
1: No such wit. I sure am. David gives Sabrina poetic plans for the future. We build ourselves a raft and drift across the Pacific. Like Contiki. Or climb behind this mountain like Anacrona. Here he's too dumb to know the names Contiki and then Aburban. Well, shucks.
0: Whatever, I don't know. A case of mastery of language over amateur deviling. Here's Linus calling David to get a scolding. Get got a minute, David? Not right now. The old man wants to
1: see you. Better come along. He's frothing at the mouth. Oh, what about? You guess. Animal? Vegetable, man. Definitely animal. Now let's have the IQ. Right, got a minute? Uh,
2: not right now. I actually have enough. sure you do. Let me be blunt. <laughs> These
1: characters are intelligent. Always oh, make it a point to have control. These ones are stupid. Uh, you know, um... our Sabrina speaks of apparatus, prime ministers, and the
2: crow. Like in the Viennese operetta. The young prince falls in love with the waitress of the Rodskeller, and the prime minister is sent to buy her off. He offers her 5,000 kronen? No, she says.
1: Fake like Sabrina speaks of movies, lawyers, and dollars.
2: Like a lawyer in a movie. He goes to the unsuitable waitress and says the family is prepared to offer you $100,000 to stay away from their son. I like
1: movies, you know, but let's be real. Who sounds modern here? (laughs) To conclude, my point is not that classic films are better than modern ones. They are, but that's not the point here. Even for his time, Wilder's takes were unusually long and his scripts unusually sharp. I always think it's quite to be lucky, too. The point is how a premise is just a pretense for personality. Dialogue has no value if the words have no bite. Close-ups and saccharine pianos cannot tell a story better than a clever visual motif. Billy Wilder's films are tight, articulate, And you with the words have no bite. Close-ups and saccharine pianos cannot tell a story better than a clever visual motif. Billy Wilder's films are tight, articulate, and visual. No wonder he could hop from 10 to 10 to 10 faster than Pete Davidson. We
2: want Billy.
1: So never forget, in a world where it's better than a clever visual motif, Billy Wilder's films are tight, articulate and visual. No wonder he could hop from 10 to 10 to 10 faster than Pete Davidson.
0: that's that on that. The filmmaker who did everything right, Billy Wilder, by MovieWise, as we said. Um, Longer episode than usual, but I felt galvanized and I wanted to share that feeling with you all. Uh, Talk about movies I've seen, which I haven't been able to do in a while. Be excited about videos in a way that I haven't in a while. And here we are. Uh, I want to thank you for listening as always. It's the middle of the week, finish strong, work on your passion and the things that you you truly care about, not just the things you have to do, and hopefully one day those two things can cross. We're almost in 2024. Um, be thankful you made another year. All glory to the Most High, in my case, and yours, I hope. But um, anyway, thank you again. See you next week. My other one wasn't working for some reason, (laughs) but peace.